Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham. Florida's coral reefs are in trouble. Scientists say they've been declining for decades. But researchers have very recently come up with some exciting results that they say show promise in restoring these beautiful and important marine communities. I am delighted to have some of these researchers here with us today. Our guest today from Moat Marine Laboratory in Sarasota, Dr. Aaron Muller, Science Director of the Elizabeth Moore International Center for Coral Reef Research and Restoration. Hi, Aaron. Hi. And from the Florida Aquarium, Carrie O'Neill is the Senior Coral Scientist at the Florida Aquarium, and Roger German is here, too. He's the CEO of the Florida Aquarium. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Okay, so let's talk about coral. Coral is kind of weird. I mean, it's like nothing else. People don't know whether it's a plant or an animal. Where does it live? Why does it live in these special places? Carrie, what is coral? Sure. So a lot of people think that coral is just a rock or a plant. Um, It's actually an animal, and it it lives only on this about top inch of its hard stony skeleton made of calcium carbonate that it builds over time as it grows. So the coral actually has little mouths and little tentacles um, and has soft tissue on the outside of this hard skeleton. And they come in all different shapes and sizes and colors, and some are just big mounds, and some are very fine and branching. And all of these coral species growing together are what form the coral reef and form all this intricate habitat for all the other organisms that rely on the coral reef. So take-home message is that corals are animals. Um, just because they don't have eyeballs um, and they can't you know, give you a sad little look doesn't mean that they're not alive. Um, and they actually are victims of their own circumstances. Because once they've settled, the very first part of their life, they they settle onto a rock and then that's where they live for potentially thousands of years after that. They can't get up and move away from things that are happening to them. They can't run away. Aaron, but they do live in a symbiotic relationship with plants, with algae, right? And that's what gives them their colors? Yeah, absolutely. Corals themselves, the animals, are often just translucent. You know, so when you're looking at the coral colony, you see a vibrant coloration, but it actually has very little to do with the animal itself. That color that you see, the unique browns and greens and oranges, sometimes even blues are associated with the symbiotic relationship that these animals have with a single cell algae that live inside their tissue. And the common name for that single cell algae is called zooxanthellae. Those little algaes actually provide food for the corals to live through the process of photosynthesis. And the coral animal themselves give the zooxanthellae a home to to live in, and, and so it's a form of protection. And these are really ancient creatures, I would think. Yes, they've been around for millions of years. Um, They've withstood the test of time, although, of course, you know, the species that we have now weren't around millions of years ago. So they've evolved into different species and providing different niches for our our ecosystem. So Roger German, uh, you're CEO of the Florida Aquarium. I am. 
tell us about Florida's coral reef and why the Florida Aquarium feels like it's important to be involved in those research efforts. So I grew up in Chicago, and I have to be honest, I didn't realize that the third largest coral reef tract in the world is right here in Florida. So coming down here, I was like, that's really cool. People travel, you know, thousands of miles to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia or Belize, but we have this amazing nature in our backyard. And at the Florida Aquarium, we are committed to protecting and restoring our blue planet because, you know, while you have corals, the animals, and you have plants, and you have water, you have humans, and we are all connected. Why do folks come and visit Florida? Why do folks come and live here in Florida? It really is our unique environment, and we are so intertwined. And these reefs down in the Florida Coral Reef Track that both of these scientists work at really is kind of the center of, of marine life and marine biodiversity. So we're, we're going to keep doing what we can to make sure we protect them, not only for the plants and the animals that survive on them, the fish that survive, but also humankind. Yeah, so so that's an important point. I don't know if people realize how important the coral reefs are to fisheries. So talking about what humans depend on, what people depend on, the fisheries that we need have a lot to do with the coral reef system. Isn't that right? That is correct. So many of the recreational and commercially important fisheries species do depend on coral reefs for at least a part of their life cycle. So many fish in the snapper and grouper complex, for example, spend a part of their life, or if not the majority of their life, on coral reefs. And without this structure, and the, basically the coral reef acts as the condominium for the fish and the other species that live on the coral reef. And once that structure goes away, the fish no longer have anywhere to shelter. So they will leave the area to find better habitat. So a lot of these really common species that you're eating at local restaurants do rely on coral reefs. And in addition to that, uh, it's a huge part of our tourism in Florida. So scuba diving and snorkeling and just enjoying our, our beaches is such a critical part of Florida culture and Florida tourism that without the coral reef, those industries would suffer severely. Okay, so Aaron, a couple more basic questions. Coral's kind of a mystery. So, so one is, why do they grow all together? I mean, Carrie talked a little bit about how a, a baby coral will land in the sand and, and stick there or on a rock, but why, why are they all together in like a coral colony or community? Well, corals have developed a unique uh, life history strategy by being a colony. So they start off as just an individual polyp when they settle on their substrate. But in order for them to grow, they actually have to create new polyps and create skeleton over time. And so in order for corals to get bigger, they actually have to create more and more of these polyps. And they're all connected to each other so they can share resources, which is a great advantage. But they also are all connected to each other so they could potentially share things like pathogens as well, which is why sometimes when you see a coral get a disease or, or have an issue in one side of the colony, it can actually affect the entire coral colony because of that connectivity. But another great advantage of that life history of being a colony is that you can 
fragment these corals. You can take one large coral and cut it up into tiny little pieces. And now you have lots of individual corals that can grow new colonies and create you know, a new ecosystem through time through that asexual reproduction technique. And we utilize that in restoration in order to you know, start out with a very small number of individuals, but create thousands and thousands over time through that asexual propagation. Yeah, that's gotten to be a really important part of your restoration work, and we want to get into that. But first, Roger, you had mentioned that the Florida Reef Tract is the third largest in the world. I think that's amazing. And why is it where it is in South Florida and down in the Keys? Why don't we have coral reefs in the Gulf? Why don't we have them outside of Tampa Bay? What is it about those waters that is conducive to a coral reef? Well, I, I, I'm going to turn it over a little bit to Carrie and the science side mm-hmm. of that, but 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 you're exactly right. It, it's mind-boggling to think of the size and scope. Let me accent uh, one thing: where it's an eight billion dollar industry that's down there in the in the Florida Keys. What so, do you mean? So, from the sport fishing, from the snorkeling, for the tourism, it's estimated at about eight billion dollars as the economic impact. Oh, of, I of see, the, and it's some yep. way dependent on the coral reefs. Correct, correct. But for why settle down there mm-hmm. and what Mother Nature has decided to do? Um, I'm going to turn over to Carrie for a minute. Sure. There, there's a couple of factors there. So one is that corals, because of the algae that lives inside of their tissues, as Aaron mentioned, because they need that algae to get good sunlight um, in order to grow and to thrive, they tend to be found in areas with relatively clear water, which the clarity of the water tends to be influenced by how many river mouths there are close to an area. So in Tampa Bay and in the Gulf, you actually have huge influences from the Mississippi and from other rivers in the area that cause fluctuating salinity and turbidity values. But in addition to that, the corals, when they're little larvae, they actually need a hard bottom to settle onto. So they don't settle onto sand and grow. They need like a rocky formation. And the majority of our coast line off Tampa Bay is actually sand with very little hard bottom for corals to settle on. Um, But it also gets a bit too cold in the winter here for them to thrive. So we actually do get a bit too cold, a bit too sandy, um, and a bit too turbid for corals to grow up this way. Although some species do. You can find stony corals here. They just don't form the large um, barrier reef structures that you find in southeast Florida. Just isolated corals here and there. So, Aaron, what's happening with the coral reefs in Florida? Unfortunately, the Florida reef tract has been declining for at least the last 50 years or so. Um, The initial significant decline started in the late 70s and early 80s, and that was associated with a disease outbreak that scientists call white band disease. Uh, It was a disease that affected most of the staghorn and the elkhorn corals. Those are the major branching species that covered most of the reef tract back in that time period. These two species are now listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. After that particular outbreak, we have seen subsequent global bleaching events that have had regional impacts in Florida as well. So that's associated with really warm water temperatures in summertime those water temperatures stress the corals out and that symbiotic relationship that they have between the animal and that single cell algae breaks down. 
and the corals appear bright white because their coloration with the algae has disappeared. And the corals basically will starve to death if they don't reacquire that algae over time. And so the combination really of those increasing water temperatures and, and subsequent disease outbreaks that have continued, unfortunately, over time has caused the Florida coral reef to go from about 50% living coral cover so if you went to a reef and, and you dove there in the 70s, about half of it would be covered by hard corals. Now you go to that same reef and often it's only covered by about 4 or 5%. So we have lost an astronomical amount of living coral cover and that is potentially affecting the function of that reef to act as it should and, and to provide the ecosystem services that we all need. Roger, you were saying that you took a scuba diving trip down to the reef to actually look at what was happening. What did you see down there? You know, I, I got a chance to see coral up close, and it was devastating. It was, it was very sad to see coral that was dead, that you see coral that is living but has lost all of its color, color that, we were, that we're very much used to seeing, to see less animals in those coral reefs that were relying on them. Yes, you got to see a shark once in a while and some fish, but I seem to recall back in the 70s when I was down there as a kid, much more vibrant in color, much more uh, species of fish. It was really, really fun. While snorkeling was fun, it was also, uh, again, depressing just to see the crashing of this right before our eyes. So if only 4 or 5% is alive right now, Carrie, I mean, this this has to be obvious to people who are down there snorkeling. It kind of looks like a ghost town. I think it, it depends on your perspective. So as Roger said, he had been there 30 years ago. Um, and I think sometimes if people haven't seen it previously, they don't necessarily understand what's happening. Um, if you didn't see an aquarium that had 800 fish and you saw one that had 100 fish, you may think that still think that aquarium is beautiful, right? but you never saw what it was like before. So, so is it looking really pale and white now compared to how colorful it used to be? It is. So what happens is after the coral loses its tissue, that algae will start to overgrow the skeleton. So you do still have that three-dimensional structure of the reef, at least for a little while. So you will still have some fish. Um, but ultimately, that coral gets overgrown by algae, so it just sort of um, looks like a sandy-covered algae patch. And then eventually, things get in there that start to erode that structure, and it will collapse. And that's when you really start to have problems, because now you don't have the habitat and the structure for fish anymore and for lobsters and, and things that need those places to hide. So let me build, Robin, let me build on that because what, what Carrie brought up, it was very interesting because we were snorkeling down there. There were several of these other snorkeling boats, you know, where you can come down as a tourist and you can go out on a guided tour. And those folks were there and they are having the time of their life because they may not have had a reference. And so for them to be able to get in the water, to snorkel, you see this Florida coral reef, it's why you're in the Keys and you see some animals and you, maybe you see a shark go by once in a while. We obviously want to preserve that. So let's talk about research that's being done now to save the coral. Erin, you had talked a little bit briefly about what you're doing to transplant, sort of cut coral up into, into little polyps and then transplant those. Is that the main direction of your efforts? Moat Marine Laboratory has been a leader in coral restoration. And so part of that is 
the actual physical propagation and outplanting of these corals. And, and we do utilize techniques where we can fragment corals up into new individuals and outplant them onto the reef. But where my science kind of comes in and fits within the restoration scope is is that I screen these different corals that we're using for resilience to some of the major threats that are affecting the reef tract, uh, some of the ones that we've been talking about, such as increasing water temperatures and, and disease. And, and I funnel that information into our restoration practitioners so that they can populate the reef with as resilient corals as possible so that they can be surviving hundreds of years from now. I can't imagine how slow that work is because the corals grow at what, like a half an inch a year, maybe a couple inches a year. So putting down those corals and waiting for them to grow has got to, you've got to have patience, it seems like. Yeah, so some coral species do grow very slowly, typically just a couple millimeters a year, but we've actually revolutionized the technology for restoration for those species. We've developed a technique called microfragmentation where we cut up the coral into very small pieces, but in doing so, we actually trigger a growth response. And so this methodology causes those corals to grow 50 times faster than they would naturally. So you actually can get a lot of great results in your restoration, not only for the fast growing species, which are the branching corals, but also for the typically slower growing boulder and brain corals. So we've kind of been able to overcome some of those limitations that were originally around for restoration practitioners. We do restore various uh, genotypes out onto the reef now. So genotypes are just different individuals that have different genetic makeup. But in the process, we also do a screening of those genotypes for these different resilient traits. So we'll know that, say, genotype A may be more heat tolerant and genotype B may be more disease resistant. We want to have a high genetic diversity in our outplanning scheme because that indicates a healthy population when you have high genetic diversity. But we can also utilize that information to create the next generation of babies from these parents that are potentially more resilient. Those uh, babies are now going to have a higher probability of being more resilient to some of those threats that unfortunately aren't going away anytime soon. Carrie, I want you to talk about this announcement that you made at the aquarium last week. You had some really exciting research going on over there. Carrie, you want to talk about it? Sure. So the Florida Aquarium has been involved in a Atlantic Pillar Coral Rescue Project with our partners from Nova Southeastern University and Keys Marine Lab and NOAA and FWC. Um, started collecting these endangered Atlantic pillar corals and bringing them into land-based facilities back in 2015. So we've been housing about 180 of these corals that were actually removed from the Florida reef tract just as fragments to prevent them from being lost to the current disease outbreak that's occurring. So this disease, um, when it goes through an area, it kills all of the pillar corals in its wake. Is this the uh, stony coral tissue loss disease? Correct. So this is the current disease outbreak that we're dealing with is called stony coral tissue loss disease. And uh, as Aaron mentioned, you know, Florida has a a history of coral diseases coming and having outbreaks and um, then bleaching events in between. And and the current one we're dealing with is stony coral tissue loss disease, which was first noted in 2014 off the coast of Miami. 
this disease affects over 22 different species. And pillar coral is, is one of the top ones. So this coral, it, if the disease comes through, chances are that all of the pillar corals are going to be affected in an area. We only have, as of the last survey, around 58 genotypes, so 58 genetic individuals and about 117 actual colonies of pillar coral left on the Florida Reef Tract. So what we really needed to focus on with pillar coral was how do we spawn them or make them sexually reproduce in the laboratory. So in the field, the, these pillar corals are pretty far apart. And, and this species is the male and female are separate. They're what's called a gonochore. And the male may literally be three miles apart from the female. And when they spawn, it, you can barely even get the eggs and sperm together in time to get a good fertilization rate and, and raise a baby. And winning the lottery. If yeah. it's and, and this is with a lot of human intervention and many people on boats and diving and nets and every contraption you could think of to try to make it happen. And So um, let's just describe spawn. Spawning is the female species is, is just shooting out eggs into the water. Sure. And then the male is shooting out sperm, and somehow these, even if they're three miles apart, they have to fertilize it. Exactly. So in, in the pillar coral, that's pretty much exactly how it happens. So um, the second and third day after the full moon of August at about 945 at night, um, the males will just release their sperm into a cloud in, in the water column. And then about 15 minutes later, the females will release their eggs into the water column. And then in the ocean, you would hope that they would meet each other while they're still viable and then form just a tiny, tiny little larvae. They're only about 200 microns in size. And then that little larvae has to find the reef before it gets swept away and has to find a suitable suitable place to live. And that process is just not occurring in the wild for pillar coral. So what we've done is take these pillar corals into um, into aquarium systems, and we've had them under our care at the Florida Aquarium for up to three years now. But normally, they would lose all of those natural cues that they get to trigger them to spawn on that special night after the full moon of August once a year, because that is actually a, can be a five to 11-month process. So it, they need to know the winter temperature and the warming of water in the spring and the increase of, of photo period during the day and the intensity of light changes and the moon phases change. and Flowers it's a, and wine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very, white. Very white. All these things have to come in line to get that coral to spawn. So when they're kept ex situ or out of the ocean, a lot of times they don't get all of those cues, so they lose the ability to sexually reproduce. Um, but for the first time we have been able to give the Atlantic pillar coral all of those cues that it needs artificially using LED lighting and special computer controlled systems and and it worked and it worked well um, for we, the first time for the first time last Saturday and we had a synchronized mass spawning of pillar coral at the Florida Aquarium and what was the date of that Saturday that was Saturday August seventeenth and then it happened again on Sunday and a little bit on Monday and that is exactly when it would spawn in the wild it literally we had a team monitoring in the wild and they were literally about four or five minutes off from one another oh my god pretty cool so we did something 
everything right. We gave them everything that they needed, um, giving them great husbandry, great water quality, and all the cues that they needed. It's a sigh of relief because this species, a lot of scientists thought that this would be our last year to be able to spawn pillar coral um, and to be able to try to make pillar coral babies because of this disease. You know, this wow. species may be gone by next year in Florida. This success means that we can continue to breed and raise and successfully work with restoration practitioners to restore the population of pillar coral. It's not gone. So what's next? Now you've got all these, what, polyps? Uh, yeah, 30,000. 30,000 polyps. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so do you, you have a nursery for them? Yes, and- exactly. So we had 30,000 larvae, and then we, we, had, we haven't counted yet, so we don't know how many polyps we have yet. But, it, you know, it'll easily be in the thousands. So we'll go through, we'll count them. We'll get them into special aquarium systems where we will rear them um, and keep them clean and tend to them for many months to come until they are big enough and healthy enough to start doing research on when is the appropriate time to return these little guys back to the reef or potentially even go into something like the microfragmentine that Aaron talked about where maybe you can get them to grow a little faster and then go back to the reef. So these two techniques totally go hand in hand. It's not feasible for humans to go replant the entire Florida reef tract. That is not going to work. Um, What we can do is focus on replanting very resilient areas that then have the ability to reproduce on their own and repopulate the rest of the reef tract. So, Aaron, do you work together? Do, do your labs work together with other researchers? Oh, yeah. We always are communicating with each other. Uh, there's several partners throughout the state of Florida, and us working together is critical for, you know, recovery of the Florida Reef Track. No one organization can do it by themselves. So let me ask you both, Carrie and Aaron. so are there steps that people can take, your average tourist, beachgoer, to help the coral reefs. I know I've heard something about even using the right sunscreen lotion. So using reef-safe sunscreen certainly doesn't hurt. Um, And what is that? So there are certain chemicals um, in sunscreen that have been shown to be detrimental to corals at certain concentrations. I don't know all of them. It was actually evolving, the um, the research on that, so I don't want to list all of them off the top of my head. But people can Google that and and learn about that online. So just uh, it's worth looking looking into using reef-safe sunscreen if you're going to be snorkeling or diving in close proximity to corals. Um, But I think it's a lot bigger issue here. So we have to look at what is happening that is causing this decline. Um, We have to look at our carbon footprints. We have to look at who is in charge politically. And people can get out and do things like reduce their carbon footprint and make good decisions when they're voting. Um, It's really about going and voting for people that care about Florida's coral reefs and, and voting for people that care about our environment and our economy. Aaron, There's a lot of issues, obviously, affecting the Florida Reef Tract, both global and, and local in nature. And so one thing we do know is if you protect your reef locally, you know, have clean water, reduce impacts to the reef. So you want to make sure not to directly touch any of the corals, make sure you're anchoring in a proper location where there's sand, um, you know, be conscious about the personal care products that you're putting into the water. Protecting that reef in a local scale actually allows the, the corals to be able to withstand the global 
global pressures in a more resilient way. So they can handle global issues when you take care of your reef on a local scale. In addition, every resident of Florida can also purchase a Protect Our Reefs license plate the money that goes into those license plates actually helps support restoration in the Florida Keys. Um, And so it's a great way for somebody to be able to put a coral back out onto the reef, you know, just by getting a Protect Our Reefs license plate. That is Erin Muller, Science Director of Moat Marine Laboratory Center for Coral Reef Research and Restoration. We've also been talking with Carrie O'Neill, a senior coral scientist at the Florida Aquarium, and Roger German, who is the CEO of the Florida Aquarium. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Robin. So there are lots of ways for you to connect with us. You can tweet us at Florida Matters or find us on the WUSF Facebook page. And Florida Matters is available as a podcast. You can search for it wherever you get your podcasts. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is Craig George. This week's show was produced by Stephanie Colombini, Mary Shedden, and Steve Newborn. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.